Hello, pediatric commuters. I'm so pleased with the amount of feedback that I received after the episode about eczema. I have a long list of ideas for the following episodes and hopefully I will be adding more themes that could be useful if you are preparing for your exams and not only. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Harrison, a community pediatrician working in Birmingham. We will discuss about autistic spectrum disorder. Obviously, this theme is very broad and we only manage to cover certain aspects, but I would be more than happy to do another episode if you have any specific questions regarding ASD. I have to mention that this podcast expresses the views of the host and guests, and that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. One doctor may have a different way of doing things from another. The podcast is not sponsored by any drug or device companies. Have a safe commute! Hello and welcome to the Pediatric Commuter. We are in Allen Croft Children's Centre today and I am joined by Dr. Richard Harrison. We are going to discuss about autism today. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Nice to um, have you here. I'm really glad that you accepted to join us in this podcast. Let's start with the beginning. What is the right terminology? People say a lot of, they use a lot of terms like autism, autistic spectrum disorder, Asperger. How shall we address this diagnosis? I think, like most conditions, it sometimes depends on what the person wants. So if someone has ownership of their condition, it's right to call them whatever they feel it should be called. Personally, when I'm giving a diagnosis, especially to a young child, I tend to use the phrase autistic spectrum condition. Lots of families don't like the word disorder if you call it an autistic spectrum disorder. Sometimes they just prefer the term autism, but young people themselves sometimes like to own terms, and we need to respect that. So sometimes they like to call themselves Asperger's or Aspie or that sort of thing and and that's okay so I feel we should just work with the families as much as possible on that one. Okay but it's not wrong if if we just call someone autistic it's an absolutely fine term to use. I think some people wouldn't like being called autistic in the same way that some people might not, not, not like the term spastic. You wouldn't say a spastic person you would say a person with spasticity because that describes something clinical in the same way some people wouldn't like to be called autistic, they want to be called a person with autism, and, and sometimes that's personal choice, and uh, again, I think you have to probably take the safer option, which would be a person with autism, unless that person was fairly clear about what they wanted. Okay, I'm really glad we started with, with this question. So, What causes autism? I know this is a very difficult question, but is there anything identified in the background of the child um, to suggest why the child would have autism? Essentially we don't know. There's been a lot of research into trying to understand what is associated with autism. It's definitely associated with things like prematurity and there is almost certainly a genetic component because if you have a sibling who is autistic then that child is much more likely to be autistic and twin studies show the same thing. But it's not absolute and we don't really understand why that is. If you look at broader gene studies, then there are lots and lots of genes that have been associated with autism, but even the commonest of those genes account for less than 1% of people with autism. So it's really difficult to know how much to attribute to those. Then there are some associated factors, but there is no one factor that seems to be absolutely overwhelming, which is fairly common again in medicine. What are the diagnostic criteria for ASD? Um, I know there are different ones. We have the ICD-10 and we have the DSM-5. So the way in which we diagnose children with autism really depends on which one of them we use. But is there a sort of a common ground decision 
in the NHS of what sort of criteria do we use for diagnosis of autism? So we use ICD, which is International Classification of Diseases, and that's set by the World Health Organization. The 11th volume is coming out, was just come out in 2018, which has brought us closer to the American system, which is called DSM. And it's got rid of terms such as Asperger's and that sort of thing, and we're now broadly under the umbrella of an autistic spectrum disorder or autistic spectrum condition. The difficult thing about autism is, of course, it's not a numerical thing, it's a descriptive thing, because we're not trying to understand about a disease process, we're trying to understand how people think. And that's harder to put into terms. But broadly speaking, we're talking about somebody who's got difficulties with social interaction and communication, and people who've got rigid and repetitive behaviours. And combined with those things, often have different mannerisms or sensory issues alongside with that. And the difficult thing that we've talked about, I know in, in our teaching sessions previously, is that people don't always present in the same way with the same thing, which is why it's an umbrella term. And different people who, they're in the same situations and the same condition, but they might respond differently. And that can be hard because people who are trying to understand what autism is can then be put off and say, well, this can't be autism because they didn't rock or flap their hands or spin in this situation. But that's, that's, that's not necessarily how it is, which makes diagnosis quite tricky. It always is. How should we interpret the term spectrum? I know some people say, oh, my child only has mild autism or oh, this child has severe autism. But I know the spectrum shouldn't be interpreted like this. How should we interpret this term, spectrum, in this area? Well, some people would interpret it the same way. So some people would say that severe autism would mean that you also have an associated intellectual impairment. So they see severely autistic people as those who are also learning disabled, for instance. And therefore mild autism is people who are not learning disabled. In fact, the term higher functioning autism exists to describe people who don't have a learning disability associated with autism. It isn't kind of a higher level of function, not some kind of expert ability that you have. It just means that you're not intellectually impaired. But actually, the problem is, is that the level of learning issue that you have doesn't necessarily mean that you are, doesn't necessarily equate to the level of functional issue your autism causes you. Because you can have people who are really, really intelligent, you should be able to do lots but actually, because of their autism, are completely functionally impaired and unable to operate in society. Whereas you can have someone who's got fairly good-going um, intellectual impairments, but they're having a pretty nice life and their autism doesn't impact on them half so much. So then, which group do you use to describe severe? Is it the people who are intellectually impaired or is it the people who don't, or can't function? And it's the, for that reason that I try and avoid the term mild and severe because I don't think it's always obvious which way around it is. What is Asperger syndrome? We've, we've seen this quite a lot. Our parents tell us, oh, my child has Asperger, or as you said, young adults tell us. Um, sometimes quite proud about this. Yeah. Um, what does this mean? What's the difference between? So um, Asperger was a, a guy who described a particular type of autism, and it was essentially autism where there was much less speech impairment and um, no intellectual impairment or certainly much milder. So it separates out from people who had intellectual impairments and people who had significant speech impairment. And that's the difference, generally. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's broadly true. Doing a bit of research before 
I came here to record a podcast, I found out about a new term. I've, I've never heard of it before. It's called pathological demand avoidance. Yep. Can you please explain to us what does this mean? So I'll try because there's quite a lot of controversy about pathological demand avoidance. There was a psychologist called Elizabeth Newsom who worked in Nottingham and she described a population of children who had been referred for autism assessment and whom she felt there was a subcategory of autism or even a completely different thinking process. And it's, it's debatable at the moment whether or not pathological demand avoidance comes under the autistic spectrum umbrella or not. I think that for most intents and purposes it probably does fall under the autistic spectrum. And what I describe as a group of children who can appear to be quite good at role play and quite good at social interaction on a superficial level, but when they're given tasks or demands are made upon them, they will absolutely be almost unable to comply with that. Even if it's something that they would prefer to do, if they're told to do it, then they actually can't do it rather than won't do it. And that's the pathological part. And they'll go to enormous degrees of avoidant behaviour. I think it's safe to say that I don't know of anybody working in the West Midlands in the NHS who currently gives a diagnosis of that. There are certainly some private practitioners who do so, but the only centre that I'm aware of that is offering that service locally is the Elizabeth Newsom Centre in Nottingham. And it tends to be one that parents ask us about, and we could certainly say that there are autistic spectrum conditions with features of pathological de- demand avoidance. But currently, pathological demand avoidance syndrome does not exist within the realms of ICD or DSM, which we've already talked about. When can we start seeing the first symptoms or signs of autism? How young are the children when, we, when parents first notice differences? Depends on the child. Some children from a very early age. So if you have somebody who does not develop their early communication skills, then they can present, you know, the parents can pick up traits of what was going on before the age of one. Um, but it tends to be mostly retrospective from that point of view. The earliest referrals we tend to accept into the child development centre here is usually two, because by that time it's usually fairly obvious if children aren't communicating and interacting as you might expect. Sometimes we get referrals earlier, but we ask as long as there's no other things that look like it could be a disease process that we need to get involved with, we usually ask the health visitor to keep an eye on the befalling. On the other side, do we diagnose it later? Do we see, for example, children or young adults that are being diagnosed with um, autism when they're teenagers or yeah. quite late in their teenage years? You know, we absolutely do. If you look at the diagnostic criteria, which I won't go into heavily here because <laughs> they're quite heavy, You have to see early signs of the condition. It has to be something that has been there. But in some people, these issues with social interaction and communication only come out when their ability to cope is outpaced by the social challenges. I would say we get three or four different spikes in referral to our centre. Firstly, it's the children who present very early with very obvious difficulties with social interaction and social communication. Secondly, it's children who get to school at the age of four and five and it's noticed that they just can't deal with the classroom routines. It's just, just too alien to them. But there's a third, the, the third and next most noticeable set are the ones who start to struggle at about seven, eight and nine. And that is because 
at about that age, social interaction becomes a lot more complicated. Children before then are very accepting of absolutely everybody and will make real efforts to play with them, regardless of how they appear, and they'll try and include them. But at seven or eight or nine, people tend to sort of fall away from that idea of thinking. They tend to be very cliquey. Um, they'll play with people that they like, and they'll start to tell the people that they don't like to go away. And that can be very disruptive to somebody who is socially awkward or having difficulties understanding these written social rules that everyone else seems to be getting. And, and the fourth set that we tend to see are the people who get to secondary school having held all this a bit together, maybe they're in quite a nurturing environment, and then they get to secondary school. And, and because it's such a change of environment, everything can fall apart. They may have lost part of their support group because they've gone to a different school. They've suddenly got to adapt to quite a chaotic place. If you're in primary school, the, the classroom is relatively set. You know where you are, you know where you're taught, you know where the toilet is, you know where your break time is. It's probably been fairly similar for the whole of your primary school experience. And then you get to secondary school and you have to be all over the school and manage lots of different things. And it can go really badly wrong. And I think we, there we see lots of anxiety. Um, we see lots of depression and lots of people not really understanding why they don't fit in. It's probably where more girls present than boys, actually. And uh, I think we miss quite a lot of these children. I imagine quite a few drop out. There's, prob there's also, <laughs> I would say in paediatrics, we pick up quite a lot of parents with lots of autistic traits. And they, they often say, I was like that at school. And they, they, they bring their symptoms to you. And you recognise that actually they were would probably get an autism diagnosis these days, whereas in days gone by we didn't pick it up so much, I don't think. And we can refer them on as well. <laughs> they get referred to the GP? So the GPs, like, certainly in Birmingham, the GPs can refer to a service for adult assessment, yeah. We know that these children and young adults, they have loads of difficulties that they have to face day by day. But what should we tell parents to expect once we've made the diagnosis in terms of behavioural issues, fear of new... So what are the exact problems that children with autism face? Oh, I think that's a really, really broad question because some people will experience some things. It's the same as the, the presentation. So if someone's presenting with lots of anxiety, they're likely to continue to have lots of anxiety. And it, it, it has to be a case-by-case -case basis. I don't usually sit people down and tell them this is likely to be an issue, that is likely to be an issue. The other, because we have, for instance, we have lots of sleep impairment in autism, especially sleep onset impairment or frequent waking as well. But I don't sit down and tell people sleep is going to be an issue. We do signpost them to lots and lots of different organisations. If you have a, in Birmingham, where we are now, we have a, a package of talks which we give to people who are given preschool diagnoses and lots of that will feature things like how to deal with sensory issues, how to deal with educational issues, how to deal with sleep issues. Unfortunately for the school age diagnosis population we don't have that support. There are local not-for-profit organisations but we don't have any particular packages that we can tell them about. There are some educational options so there's something called the Communication Autism Team and that's a local group of education experts who can advise teachers how to teach and can also give advice to families. What are the tools that we use to diagnose uh, patients with autism? When we are diagnosing thrombocytopenia, we have a number. What can we use to diagnose patients with ASD? The most important thing with any of these diagnoses in, in every medical situation is still the history. 
So even in cases of thrombocytopenia, you wouldn't be doing that blood test unless you had a history that was consistent with thrombocytopenia, or you'd be unlikely to anyway. So the most important thing is to take a good history from the family. Now, that history has to be supported by information from other sources. Most of the time, we rely on our colleagues in education to give us a really good history as well. And that can be nursery, that can be um, schools. We also take information from health visitors. In fact, we'll take histories from anybody who can give us an idea of how they see that child, childminders. Um, I've had information from people who work with um, disabled children's groups. I've had information from scout leaders, girl guide leaders, that sort of thing. And I'll take information from wherever I can get because it all helps me form a picture. And the most important thing is still the history. Some of it is my own observations. So if I see somebody in clinic who appears to be classically demonstrating lots of the things we think about when we see someone with autism, so that might be rocking, flapping, poor eye contact, rigid, repetitive behaviours, lining up toys, spinning in circles, all these sorts of things, that's great. But not seeing those things doesn't mean that someone's not on the autistic spectrum, it just means that you haven't seen it in your clinic. As you say though, if you have someone who's got thrombocytopenia, you're looking for somebody where you've generated a number. It's great to have a number, isn't it? And in thrombocytopenia, if the platelet count is below a certain level, hey, you're thrombocytopenic, brilliant. In autism, people have made attempts to rectify that gap between qualitative stuff and quantitative stuff. And one of the things that we do use, and this is just an example, is something called ADOS. And ADOS is a sort of a semi-structured interview where a couple of practitioners will sit down with a child or young person and go through a series of tasks or questions or activities. And they're looking not at what the child necessarily says, but they're looking at the way that the child says it, they're looking at the rapport that the child develops, and they're looking for any sort of rigidity or that sort of thing as well. And at the end of it, you generate that number that you're looking for. So you generate something quantitative. Um, and if you score above a certain line, then that is suggestive. And if you score below a certain number, then that's suggest suggestive and not. However, you still have to have your history to guide you there. You still have to, because somebody who is, for instance, depressed and isn't engaging might then become repetitive and, and then they might look like they're autistic. So it's not perfect, I'm afraid. Wish it was. If we are not community pediatricians and we work in the pediatric assessment unit or in ED or in a GP practice, and we see a child for a completely different thing, for example, a viral infection, mm. and we think the child is showing some signs that would be suggestive of, of autism, which would be the best way to approach this subject with the parents? Yeah, that's very contextual, isn't it? There is no right or wrong answer to that, and you have to operate within how the parents are at the time. They might be pretty stressed at the time, because if they've come to see you because they're worried about the child's health, then it may not seem like a good time to talk about it. But I have had excellent referrals from peds, ED trainees, who have spotted signs of autism and have broached it with the family. Like most things, it's good to start out with broad questions. So, for all you know, they might already have a diagnosis, you just haven't been told that. So you might want to go in with something fairly broad, like, I've noticed that they're fairly avoiding my eye contact, that sort of thing. Is that something that you've noticed? And, and throw it right back at them, or, or, or um, they sure are rocking you a lot, you know, there is that, is that because they're in pain or is there another reason, that sort of thing. You can go into the topic however you want to. But that's a very difficult question to answer because it's going to depend on the situation, it's going to depend on the level of insight you think the parents might have and you have to just explore it very gently. If we made a diagnosis of ASD, what support can the families get? I know it varies a lot of where you are, where we live in the country. Yeah. But where should we guide them 
towards like certain websites, certain charities that are well renowned. Because I know if you just press Google and you write autism, you might get a lot of information that is not really, let's say, pertinent. Yes, and if you type in any diagnosis into the internet, you will usually get a Wikipedia article up first. And having looked at Wikipedia, some of the stuff that is on there about autism, I would not fundamentally disagree with what I would say isn't how I think of autism. But it's always a good idea to have a look at the Wikipedia entry because that's what families will be looking at first. So I would, I would encourage most people to look at that for most conditions, not because we should be using it as a medical journal, but because actually if, family, if you give a diagnosis to a family, the first thing you're going to do is Google it and it'll appear on Wikipedia. So then you'll have some idea of what the parents will see. But we want to be able to direct them to reliable resources. Now, certainly in the UK, there is a good organisation called the National Autistic Society and their website is pretty good. Again, there are some bits on there that I can take with a pinch of salt, but that's okay because not everybody who works in this building will have the same idea of what autism is to me. We'll always find our own path. If you go to any department full of paediatricians, we'll have a few disagreements about what is and what isn't the right diagnosis in any situation, let alone with autism. But the National Autistic Society is a good place to start. Within schools, in pretty much every area, I would imagine there will be someone supporting teachers um, for pupils who've got a diagnosis of autism in Birmingham that happens to be called the Communication Autism Team and there are local organisations as well I don't know whether you want me to say which, what the names are in Birmingham but we have Autism West Midlands we have resources for autism um, and there are there are more and more I'll make sure I link all these um, societies and charities in the description box so that if you have a spare moment you can probably have a look it was quite eye-opening for me to read even though I'm now training in community paediatrics for these six months, uh, reading all the information on the National Autistic Society mm. website was quite was really really useful. So, for all the listeners, if you have a few minutes, please have a look and um, read. And also, if you find leaflets about autism in your community settings or yeah. in the school, please have a read. They have a whole lot of information. I think that's it. I think we covered quite a lot about um, autistic spectrum disorder. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. And hopefully we will see you again to discuss about a different subject uh, in the realms of community pediatrics. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you for listening and staying with us until the end. As usual, you'll find a lot of useful resources in the description box. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know if you have any ideas of themes that could be discussed in the next episodes. If you prefer to listen to us in an app, you can search for Pediatric Commuter in the podcast app on iPhones, Podbean, or Google Podcasts for Android-operated phones. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and don't forget to rate us. Have a nice day!